0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Western Huntsman. Thanks for joining me this week, guys. Before I kick it off with my guest, I want to talk about something. And it's, uh, I don't know, there's there's some funny parts to this, but it's also kind of a serious matter and I want to address it. I got a, I got this random email from this dude in England, and I don't know if you guys know what a hunt sab is, but a hunt sab are these, these folks that uh, they... They are so against hunting that they go out and sabotage people while they're hunting, and this mainly happens in Europe. It does happen here in the states. It it has happened, and I I know of circumstances where it's happened here and and up in Canada. So uh, we're not we're not like you know immune from that. But it, it it a lot of it happens in the United Kingdom, and this is where a lot of these groups are, and they've got like you know major organization behind these groups where they figure out who's going hunting or whatever, and they go out and sabotage a hunt. Well, they did that to a buddy of mine who I had on the show, I don't know, a couple years ago, Kenneth, and um he th- and this was a couple of years ago when this happened. So they go out there and try to sabotage his hunt. They get right up in his shit. Uh they start messing with him. He responds. Uh it's all on video. Some fists were thrown. Not even a big deal. It would have been a lot worse if I was there to be honest with you. But these guys go out there and just insert themselves into my buddy's life and then are blown away that he, you know, reacts to it. So Anyway, time goes on, and I get, just so you guys know, like, when, when you do a show like this, you're always going to get a bunch of hate mail. Some of it is, you know, from hunters or, um, you know, outdoorsmen, other sportsmen, whatever, which is fine. I expect that, and I actually, I kind of like that because it, it kind of, not only does it help keep me in check if they're calling me out for something that I've done, or maybe I, I spoke uh, before thinking on and, and whatnot, and I, I actually kind of appreciate that feedback. Even if they're mean, um, it's sometimes pretty constructive for me, but um, I, I also like it just because it kind of helps me gauge, you know, what, what other people are thinking because not everybody has a podcast, so I like that, but so that that's just one side of it. The other side of it is I get a lot of hate mail from anti-hunting uh, folks, uh, you know, people that because it is a podcast, it gets shared, uh, we'll we'll cover something on the anti-hunting movement and it'll get sent over to, you know, somebody at uh, the Humane Society of the United States or PETA or, or whatever, and they'll send me these nasty emails. Um, and you guys know, before I read this guy's email, I mark all my episodes with the exception of the Dashboard Hunting Mentor Series as explicit. And I do that for a reason, so I could speak freely and speak the way I normally talk. Uh, and in this case, I just, you know, give warning because uh, of the, the email and a particular word he uses. I'm not going to use my buddy's name. I'm going to just kind of read this. And it's such a random email. Like, why, the, the, first of all, the episode was recorded well over a year and a half ago. And, and second of all, like, like, how did they even track this down? And, and this guy is so concerned with his self-righteous cause, he decides to send me a freaking email about it. It's bizarre. <laughs> anyway, dude's name is Dan Colburn. Obviously, he's from uh, Great Britain, uh, United Kingdom. What, I don't know what you guys like to call it over there. Maybe my buddy can uh, let me know. Anyway, it says, maybe you don't know about that twat, uh, blankety blank, before you interviewed him, but he's a psychotic evil wanker who will soon be in jail in the UK for assaulting people who were just trying to protect animals from cunts like you. (laughs) So, uh, then he kind of puts the link in the email there and, uh, it's, uh, you know, showing the story of what happened to my buddy and, and, and the little scuffle they all got in and then he wraps it up with hope you hunters all die in agony yourselves cunts. (laughs) So I know, uh, a lot of friends, uh, you know, a lot of folks in the in the UK have this proclivity to use the word cunt. I don't, I don't particularly care for that word. Um, it's, it is pretty, pretty much a nasty word. So, so what I did is I, I responded to him, and I'm like, "Hey man, you know, uh, you can call me what you want on on air. Like, come on my show instead of like sniping at me through an email." Why don't you come on your show, bring some backbone and and you know, make a case for yourself and your cause in this this silly hunt saboteur thing that you guys do. I'd, I I and I would totally facilitate that. And so obviously, as is usual with anybody um, in the anti-hunting space and the anti-hunting movement, he turned me down and wrote this big diatribe of an email. Uh I'm not going to read that whole thing. Um it's just interesting that the person took the time to do all this and respond to this. And again, his name is Dan. And I just like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll just address him for a minute because I, this, this kind of stuff, it drives me crazy when, when people, and, and I think it drives a lot of you crazy too. When people are super mouthy through a keyboard, the, these keyboard warriors, we call them. And, but they don't have the backbone to talk in person and, and come on and, and actually talk in person, and so I suppose something I would I would say to this guy, Dan, I, I, I guess one one would think that would tr- what would trouble me about an email like this that you sent me is your use of name calling and hatred and vitriol. Um, it's not um, not at all. Let me explain something, my little British friend. What troubles me is seeing someone with so little understanding of wild things and wild places. And uh, so little of an understanding of the human connection to nature. Having such a strong opinion about it. Now, I get that you have, you know, wrongly placed yourself on this phantom pedestal of morality. But for a moment, take some time to ponder someone else's perspective. Because you just might find out how wildly misguided you are. You've been led to believe that your existence as a vegan and an animal activist an overall leftist misfit and thug does no harm to wildlife and to our planet the problem is is you're wrong you call us wankers and cunts and and all this stuff but your mundane pathetic life that is so far removed from the realities of the natural world mixed with a first world level quality of life that has given you the luxury to attach yourself to a cause that just simply isn't being straight with you, man. You joined a hunt sab group to fulfill an emptiness in your soul that you barely know even exists. You, you feel anyone who disagrees with your values or your worldview and your bizarre blind following of like-minded misfits are evil and like demonized humans. So what this leaves us with, Dan... Is your belief that your unnatural life choices are human and humane. But those of us that have a more traditional lifestyle, you know, we're demonized and beneath humanism. I don't know, I guess the the biggest difference between you and I is you and your perverted animal activist friends have inserted your perverted beliefs into our lives. You, You see, you attacked my friend in that field. You attacked me over an email. You and your friends came at us under the fantasy of this anti-hunting movement. It is you who started this fight. We didn't come at you. We didn't come at you. We just want to live our life and be left alone the way that humans have always lived on this planet. So you started it, but the consequences, my friend, are yours to face. Because like I said you know, a moment ago, if, if, if you came between me and my humanistic right, to live my life through hunting and provide for my family, the way that you did to my friend in that field in the United Kingdom, the end result would have been much worse for you. So, And I told you guys, he he responded to me um, with this other email after I invited him on the show. And he says, uh, I got to pull it up here. He says, the only thing I'd hope for is that people that hunt take the time to consider how precious life really is and to watch those nature documentaries to show the beauty of the natural world and see how animals care for their young. (laughs) Son, I don't watch nature documentaries to educate myself as to the natural world. I live in it. I experience it. I survive in it daily. My connection to the wild would be unfathomable to you. I have experienced the brutality of nature on a level you never will, even in your wildest wet dream, buddy. I respect the animal more than you. I know the animal on an intimate level more so than you ever will. I observe the wild in person. You see, I don't, I don't watch it on Netflix or on social media or, or nature documentaries. Your statement is just laughable at best. And then he says, uh, I truly believe as the crime stats show, that people that choose to hunt, let's see, no, I read that wrong. The people that choose to hurt animals are more likely to cause harm to people too. There's something in that for sure. The evidence is there. <laughs> Dan, I can I can only assume you're uh, referencing a um, an American study by the FBI that finds like 16% of violent criminals started out abusing their pets. There is a huge difference between pet abuse and hunting obviously you know that right yeah i mean you understand how irrational this reference is when comparing it to the hunter right i mean certainly your unhealthy obsession with the hunting community has to be deeper than referencing studies completely unrelated to hunting wildlife like that is just a bizarre reference so i don't know lastly you asked me to find a different hobby and that you hope i have an epiphany i mean thanks for the well wishes dan um I had an epiphany long before you were born, yeah, I, and I'm just kind of assuming your age, I suppose, but uh, long before you were born, this epiphany hit me. Hunting isn't a hobby. Hunting is a way of life. It's seated in the entirety of the human experiment and only lost on those far removed from it and from nature, such as yourself, Dan. And I, I know I won't break through to you. Honestly, I really don't care not my issue. It's your issue. You, you brought this upon yourself. You're a lost soul in search of a cause, all because you were not fulfilled with a life lived amongst the concrete jungles of urban Europe. Your need for a connection to something primal has manifested itself in attempting to do damage to others as a keyboard warrior and you know maybe protesting a hunt now and then. It truly is sad. It's pathetic. It's childish. You won't even come on my show to defend your worldview because deep down, you know damn well that not only is your cause weak, but so are you. You will never actually put your feet to the fire. You'll never actually experience nature in a real-life, holistic way, the way that I do. You will continue to drone on with your progressive friends Screaming upon deaf ears because, let's face it, you just don't have any credibility, man. And you also don't have any real chance of living a happy life with this state of mind. You will always be angry. And for your sake, because you are a fellow human, a misguided fellow human, I might add, but you are a fellow human. But I hope I'm wrong. There exists a threat. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tan studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. Glad you guys are here. Um, Let's talk about Hoffman Boots for a minute, guys. The uh, Hoffman Boots is a generationally owned family of shoemakers right here in North Idaho. And for a long time, they've been making, you know, pack boots and lineman boots, And all sorts of work boots. Uh, And, you know, a little over a decade ago or so, they decided to dip their toes into the hunting boot space. And uh, they did a hell of a job with it. I specifically like my my uh, Hoffman Explorers uh, with that eight inch because the the eight inch goes a little bit higher and it takes some getting used to if you've if you've never worn an eight inch boot. Um, but I like the eight and ten inch boots. It's always been my thing. The six inch for some reason for me and and again this is just like a personal preference. The six inch. It doesn't give me the ankle support that I like, so I I go with the 8-inch. But uh, you guys check it out at HoffmanBoots.com and make that determination on your own if you want. And don't forget to use promo code HUNTSMAN10, all caps lock, for 10% off. You're going to get boots with a lifetime warranty made by a family of shoemakers. These guys know exactly what they're doing. It's a local company uh, that makes some of the best, in my opinion, the best hunting boots on the market. You get excellent Uh, support in the ankle. They're waterproof. They glue your feet to the mountain uh, because they use those vibrant soles. Uh, It's just a great boot. They don't skimp on anything with the exception of the price. You're not going to have to take out a second mortgage uh, to be able to afford these boots. So check it out, HoffmanBoots.com. And don't forget to use promo code HUNTSMAN10, all caps lock. Gives you 10% off. Guys, this week, I have my new friend, Fonzie Haskell, From the northeast corner of Wyoming, one of my favorite states in the Union, right behind Idaho, i got to (laughs) say. Fonzie, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for joining me, dude.
1: Thanks, Jim. It's my
0: pleasure to be here with you. All right, so um, we were just talking about how you, basically, you grew up in the other side of the state, down in like the Rock Springs area. Um, Correct,
1: yep. I was born and raised in Rock Springs.
0: So I used to fish a lot out of there, man. Uh, that's pretty close to the Green River, right?
1: Right, yeah. Uh, 15 miles
0: away. Rock Springs and
1: Green River are 15 miles apart. And then, of course, the Green River um, feeds into the Flaming Gorge Reservoir. It's a big body water.
0: So I wonder if we ever crossed trails uh, over at Flaming Gorge, because we used to go there all the time when I was a kid. It's and,
1: a possibility. Yeah, yeah, I spent a lot of time there as a kid as well.
0: Did you? Yeah, yep. you know, it was the the lake the the lake we you have to be a little bit you know used to having a windstorm every afternoon. It seems like, <laughs> but that's like yes. anything Wyoming, man.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That is Wyoming wind.
0: So you grew up in Rock Springs, and what brought you over to the other end of the state?
1: So you know, growing up outdoors, I grew up in town, but always enjoyed being outdoors. Uh, just. Out of town just goofing off with my buddies out in the out in the boonies and you know that led to me wanting to be a cowboy um you know didn't grow up on a ranch or anything my my parents my dad he was uh, in law enforcement in the military my mom had various you know jobs uh, as a clerk and in offices and things like that but i just loved being out of doors so in high school i wanted to uh start rodeoing and, and i started riding bulls in high school and got to know other people around the state and uh became friends with got to know some guys from the Gillette area that rodeoed as well and got to become better friends with them and then after high school um I I came to came to Gillette and and one of those friends I came to live with him you know rodeoed with him and we worked for his parents during the week they had a, a small business uh landscaping business and and lawn care stuff so we would work for his parents during the week and then go rodeo and on the weekends and and one of the other uh, two of the other friends they're twins uh, matt and chad birch um and they came from a big ranch Uh, and i became better friends with them and got to hang out with them a little more and and matt he was uh avid hunter and he said hey you know he, he would invite me out hey come out and let's go look at mule deer i'm like yeah twist my rubber arm (laughs) <laughs> so I, you know, come out and hang with him and, you know, just hang out on the ranch, their big family ranch. And uh, eventually he he offered me jobs said, hey, would you like to come work for us on the ranch and and guide hunters for me? He had uh, a small outfit and gig. His, at the time, his parents had leased to another outfitter, their ranch. And uh, and then he had a, a small portion of the ranch that he would get to hunt on and just take a few uh, hunters. And but offered for me to come and guide for him and work on the ranch. And I've been here that was uh that was the fall of ninety-eight. So I've been here ever since. So, you know, going oh, no, on 25 kidding. years now. Yep.
0: Yeah,
2: you've um,
1: been there a so, while, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's that's how I, I came to be here in this part of the state was you know, following my dream of rodeoing and um, you know, just meeting new people. Uh, so yeah, I've been here for quite a while, and you know have my family here, but I still work for them on the ranch, and and now I manage the outfitting business for Matt. Um, we're the primary outfitter on their ranch, as well as leasing some neighboring ranches for outfitting. Um, we we hunt on probably about a total of 270,000 acres, and about eighty five percent of those. Acres are um, deeded land, oh, wow. so we we can Sweet. yeah we control access to to a big chunk of property, and, and we've got mule deer, antelope, elk, and uh, white-tailed deer on it, and and turkeys too, and then you know a variety of predators, primarily coyotes. But yeah, um, yeah that that keeps me busy because they also you know uh, um, they own a rodeo company in addition to the ranch, a large cattle ranch. Um, oh, really? And yeah, so they they own. The, the ranch is Pickerel Land and Cattle Company. So if you're looking at OnX or Base Map or whatever mapping software you use and you look on there and you can see uh, that they've got land in, in Campbell, Crook and Weston counties in Northeast Wyoming. Um, they have. They operate on their ranch. They operate on approximately 170, 175,000 acres and about 120,000 of that is deeded in their name. So it's a large multi-generation family ranch and it's it's pretty cool place to be a part of but uh in addition to the ranch yeah in addition to the ranch they also own a rodeo company so they raise bucking horses and bucking bulls and you know at one time there was over a thousand head of horses on this place in addition to all the cattle and so it's uh it's it's a neat neat deal
0: if i ever wanted to buy a horse would i give you a call
1: uh depends on what kind of horse you're looking for if you're looking for one to uh, take on elk hunts and uh and pack the eggs on we're probably not the people you want to call because these horses are bred to buck
2: (laughs) oh gotcha
0: okay so probably not my kind of horse no they're uh, they're they're
1: they're good horses for a mother-in-law i guess we could
0: put it that (laughs) that's a great way i don't think i don't think uh any horse could buck my mother in law oh wait i shouldn't say that um right so so uh you know, which by the way, I don't want a horse anymore, man. I used to have horses and, right. uh, um, I don't know, I, I guess I would, but it, it's the, it's the being kind of bogged down with them that, that I don't right. like, you know? Right. Um, but
1: yeah, if you're not uh, using them often or frequently, you know, for other activities, whether you're roping or just trail riding or, you know using them often you know then you can justify having them but if you're using them you know strictly hunting season and they're just hay burners the rest of the year yeah
0: they're, yeah can, well you're, you're married to them and that's that's a problem like you know if if um let's say i want to take the kids like i have this this vacation planned out where i'm i'm going to take the kid my wife and kids i want to fly back east and rent like a motor home and spend like yeah. two or three weeks because we we homeschool our kids you know and spend yeah, like two or so three we. weeks when uh, y- traveling all the Civil War battlefields, and that'd uh, be awesome. And, and it'd be it'd be sweet, man. But like back when I had horses, stuff like that would really stress me out. I had a hard time finding somebody that would swing by and feed the horses and uh, make sure they're all right, you know. And and I just right. I just got tired of being bogged down with them. But I imagine growing up in Wyoming, uh it, it it's it'd be tough to not grow up wanting to be a cowboy. And so right. uh, that begs the question, are you a Chris LeDoux fan? Oh, yes. Yes, sir. So I, I was coming through Wyoming. I, I, I've i always wanted to talk about this on the podcast for some reason, but I was coming through Wyoming. This was probably 2016, 2017-ish, and I come through Casper, you know. Uh-huh. Where, um, yeah, no, not Casper. I'm sorry. Casey. Casey, Wyoming. Casey. I, yep. I knew Casper didn't sound right. So I'm I'm coming through Casey. And that's a you know just this little teeny town where Chris Ledoux is from. For uh, those of you listening that might not know who Chris Ledoux is, uh, but so they've got this monument in KC, and uh-huh. what what struck me with it, and and this is so typical Wyoming man, what struck me with the monument, you've got this. Everybody knows Chris Ledoux in the country music world for his you know music. He won awards and 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 just had all these songs and hits and blah blah blah. Uh, but what the monument was really pointing out was the fact that he was a, uh, bronc riding hero. Like he was, right. he was a cowboy. He was a rodeo hero. And so that's what they were honoring. And it's like at the very bottom, I can't remember it exactly, but like the, at the very bottom, it was like, oh, you know, and besides all this rodeo stuff, he did country music.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. He, uh, I, I never, I never had the privilege of meeting him. I know a lot of people who do, and I've actually met. Three of his five kids. In fact, his daughter, Cindy, yeah, she cooked for us one year at our hunting lodge, and uh, she did a fabulous job. She's a pretty cool gal. And then uh, I've met two of his other uh, sons. But, um, yeah, when he was rodeoing, um, if if you ever read his book, uh, I think it's called Gold Buckle.
0: Chris LeDoux's book? Yeah. No, I haven't read it. I didn't even know he had a a book, dude, and I'm like a huge Mm -hmm. Chris LeDoux fan
1: yeah he i read it back in when i was in high school so it's a it's a great book and it tells about how um you know he's uh his i believe i believe he came from michigan originally his uh his granddad was a a farmer in michigan and his dad uh, I, I think, joined the Air Force, and eventually that landed them in Cheyenne at F.E. Warren. If I'm telling this right, I'm probably getting it wrong, and somebody listening to this is well, going you know, to send hate mail, but whatever. Right, yeah, yeah right. we're just paraphrasing.
2: So, yeah,
1: But then he he ended up in Wyoming and went to college, Casper College, and rodeoed for Casper College. He high school rodeoed in Wyoming and, Cas- and rodeoed at Casper College, uh, went to the college national finals. I don't remember if he ever did win a, ca- a college national title or not but then after that went uh went pro and in the rca and then it became the prca and he was the 1976 uh world champion bareback rider but yeah those yeah. guys you know listening to his music about being on the rodeo trail and the rodeo road i mean it, it's that's what i used to rodeo to in high school listening to chris LeDoux, and he would he would you know between rodeos he'd uh, you know sing and pick his guitar and and sell albums out of the trunk of his car to get to the next rodeo.
0: Yep. That's how it started. How what was the name of that book again yeah. you said?
1: I gold, believe it's called Gold Gold Buckle.
0: Gold Buckle. Okay. I'm
1: gonna It's either Gold down. Buckle or Gold Buckle Dreams, one of those two. But yeah, I okay. read it in high school.
0: It's a great book. Nice man. No, no that's great. No, I never met him either. I went to a bunch of his shows, uh, especially like in high school. And, uh, yeah. then I, I did meet his son, Ned years ago Yep, when he was kind of starting out, you know, and, and, uh, he did a good job too. But at w- when you were doing rodeo did, uh, cause I, I assume, I, I would assume you're not doing rodeo anymore, Fonzie.
1: No, I'm, I'm, it's a, yeah, I haven't done that little, for a long time. A <laughs> little painful, right?
0: Um, I don't
1: bounce like I used to.
0: <laughs> you don't, you don't hit the ground like you used to either. I would no. I know I don't. Um, right. <laughs> So uh, did you ever do the uh, Cody rodeo? Uh,
1: Not the big 4th of July rodeo, but I went to the Cody night rodeo several times, yes.
0: Yeah, because Cody, Cody, for those of you who have never been there, uh, you got to go check out Cody because they do, uh, from like Memorial weekend through, I don't know, Labor Day or something, they do a rodeo every night of the week. In fact, uh, when we went, so I took my wife and kids down to Cody because we were, I I was actually meeting with the Eastman's guys over in Powell and, but we ended up staying in Cody and, uh, we, we go to the rodeo one night and there is like this lightning storm from hell, man. I mean, (laughs) this, the, you could see the lightning rolling across the prairie and, and, you know, right over that, um, what are those? The Absaroka mountains or whatever. Um, yes. and they're just, I mean, it is like getting scary and finally they shut the thing down and I was down getting a beer, uh, and, and all of a sudden the crowd starts kind of, you know, meandering off the bleachers down into the thing. And I'm like, oh man, what happened in there? Everybody's like, oh, they canceled rodeo. So I gotta, there, there's gotta be some redemption. I love rodeos, man. Um, I was terrible yeah. at, I tried bull riding for like, uh, I don't know, three seconds and never did it again. So and it's exciting. I love talking about that stuff, man.
1: It's cool. Oh, yeah, it is fun. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't do it anymore. And, you know, I go to some rodeos still with the, the people that I work for. And, you know, met a lot of great people at rodeos and a lot of fond memories from rodeos. Oh, yeah. A lot of a lot of memories that I would like to forget. So
2: <laughs> but
0: it's
1: all good
2: times.
0: Yeah, for sure. We've all got that in our life. It's with something, you know, relational, but there is nothing like a, uh, like my childhood memory of going to the, the Sunday night roundup rodeo and you know, just uh, the smells, the sounds, everything, everything that, that is a rodeo. There's something so American about it. And uh, I I love them. I I love rodeos still to this day. Uh, And, you know, I hope they never change because they're, they're unashamedly American and it's it's just a great, great place to be. And that's what, one cool thing about Wyoming. I always thought, you know, um, where, where I grew up and and like here in Idaho uh, it's, it's so American still. And, and then I I went to Wyoming and even the rodeo uh, and everything that we experienced there, Wyoming there, there's there's not a lot of difference there it, it is it is just as american it is just as proudly american as uh as, as idaho is and and it's just a like culture shock i think to people that might be from some of these big coastal city areas or, or you know it just it, it's something else i love it can't say enough good. yeah things absolutely about
1: it. Right. um yeah they're extreme extremely patriotic uh fan base
0: oh for sure for sure from the rodeo and just just like Idaho and Wyoming in general Montana's a lot like that yeah. and, uh as long as you stay out of Bozeman I, from what i hear but um the are you, now with guiding are you guys do you just because of the time of year is why i'm asking are you do you guys guide turkeys at all or
1: we take some turkey hunters in the spring a few yes
0: do you yep. i i I'd, I'd, I'd cruise down there with my girls and hunt turkeys with you man i'll i'll pay the pay the fee just tell me what the fee is
1: yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's fun. Do you guys have turkeys up there where you're out in the Panhandle?
0: Oh yeah, tons of them. Ton like more. <laughs> but it's it, the 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 experience of traveling to hunt turkeys elsewhere would be the appeal. Uh, I could shoot turkeys. Right, I, I agree. I could be recording with you, and if it was still daylight, I could probably walk a hundred yards from my uh, from the studio here and find a, a big goblin tom. You know.
1: Um, what uh, species of turkeys do you guys? You got Miriams or Rios?
0: We we have these Miriams. Um, okay, good. Wh- what about you yes. guys?
1: Yeah, we have Miriams as well.
0: They're a fun turkey to hunt, man. They get pretty spunky.
1: They come, are come around mid-April, oh, yeah, and they're beautiful.
0: Oh
2: yeah,
1: they're I. You know they're, I, we get hunters out here, you know, from back east, and they're avid, crazy turkey hunters, and the, and you know they have their eastern birds there. Yeah, and they see see a turkey here and and see one in strut in their colors, and yeah, they're they're beautiful.
0: I uh I just took a picture. We have an albino uh, turkey. It's it's a hen, cool. but it, just down at the bottom of the driveway, they were kind of milling around the other day, so I snapped a picture of them. But that was kind of neat. Uh, so, so outfitting wise, do you want to talk about the outfitting service that you, you manage for a minute and tell everybody, um, what you guys guide for what, you know, the, the, the breadth of the operation, if you will.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we hunt our bread and butter, are our, is our mule deer and antelope, uh, combination hunts because our, our seasons are concurrent. Um, the, the licenses are relatively, you know, about the same drawing odds for both species.
0: Um, Drawing odds. uh, Sorry to cut you off there. Uh, No, that's fine. what what kind of drawing odds are we talking? Like 1 point, 3 points?
1: Yeah, one, sometimes one or less. So
0: our antelope areas, we hunt,
1: oh, what are we hunting? Five or six different antelope areas. And and two of those hunt areas require like, you know, four to five preference points, while the rest of them can be drawn typically with, with two or less, maybe one or less. Um and you know so really good drawing odds and then our our deer um they're broken down by region uh, because as residents we can hunt them with a general license which is just you know a typical over the counter license um and so for a non-resident it's uh, region B or C and uh, I guess we do have some stuff in region A which is considered the Black Hills uh but yeah. those of all th- those all uh, about the same draw odds you know one preference point um will pretty much ensure that you, you draw a license. Um, huh. so, you know, yeah, it's, 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 and I, and there, well, there, it's that way for a few different reasons. One that we have such a high, um, uh, percentage of private land. So, you know, access to public land or access, you know, to land in general, you know, might be a little tough, yeah. uh, but also, the numbers, the density in our herd numbers is is high. Now it's a little low this year and has been for the last few years, kind of slightly trending down with winter and um drought and things like that. But you know, still overall compared to the rest of the state, we're in still in pretty good shape. Our antelope herd, we're right on the east edge of what they what is the the game of fish considers the thunder basin herd. Which is the largest antelope herd, pronghorn antelope herd in, in the world? Oh, um, really? Yeah. So we're we're right on the eastern eastern edge of of that herd of antelope. Um, so we have a lot of antelope, but our mule deer as well. You know, driving through this country, look through it and think, yeah, there wouldn't be too many deer in this, uh, you know, country looking from the interstate or the highway or whatever. But you get off the beaten path, and there's big tracts of uh, private land that is just prime and mule deer habitat
0: Oh yeah, uh, a lot i'm kind of looking at it uh from like google earth here yes did you say you're in weston
1: so we're in weston county Crook county and campbell county i gotcha. i personally live just outside of the town of
0: moorcroft oh gotcha okay what kind of terrain uh, what kind of terrain would would somebody let's say uh somebody's listening they drew a tag and and we're gonna hire you guys what, what kind of terrain are they would they be hunting for uh, mule deer
1: it's just uh, a prairie, essentially, big rolling hills, uh, sagebrush. You know, there's some drainages or draws. We have uh, the Belfouche River drainage. We're right on it. And then we've got several cricks that that feed into it. The the name of our outfitting business is Four Horse Outfitters. And one of the main drainages on the ranch is uh, Four Horse Creek. So oh, okay. it, it feeds, feeds into the Belfouche River. But yeah, it's just big rolling hills with sagebrush and, and some breaks and and draws for the the bucks to get in and out of, but it's big open country. Um, you know, just if, if you're a long range shooter, it's kind of a long range shooter's paradise. You can, you know, you can stretch the legs on, on a shot if, if you want to, but you don't have to either. So, um, but yeah, that's the kind of train we have and, and where we're, you know, uh, have a lot of ranch land and, and, you know, there's some, uh, oil and gas wells on these ranches as well, so you have improved roads that see you know only oil field traffic and uh, ranch traffic. So the wildlife are used to those vehicles because they they go by every single day, multiple times a day, and they don't cause them any harm.
2: You know, hmm. so
0: um,
1: that's kind of how we hunt as we get out in these vehicles and just get to vantage points and in, and glass.
0: God, I'm just, I'm looking at the map here, man. And I, I, I think I had, I, my perception was a little bit off as to where Sheridan was in, in terms of, I had it in my mind that Sheridan was like right in the Northeast corner, but it's a ways oh, yeah. from that border from that, you know, you know where it comes together. Um, right. so, so with, with South Dakota there. Um, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So what about you though, Fonzie? Like, tell me a little bit about your hunting background and, you know, obviously you're a guide, but tell me a little bit about your personal hunting preferences, you know, what you like to do, what what you grew up doing, that kind of thing.
1: Right. So, uh, you know, growing up Southwest Wyoming, it's all public land and, you know, started hunting for myself at the age of 14, but my dad, um, he's a, he's an avid hunter, lifelong hunter. He was born and raised in, in Salt Lake city, uh, and, and has five brothers. So, you know, when they were growing up back in the forties and fifties, Salt Lake wasn't near what it is now. He said that, you know, they'd yeah. get out of school or whatever and go down on the South end of the Valley and pheasant hunt and duck hunt and stuff like that. And then just oh, go right up to the Wasatch mountains and, and hunt, you know, hunt deer, hunt bucks.
0: So that's where um, I grew but, up, man. Okay. Yeah, just south south side of that valley. So I know what your dad's talking about. I used to hunt pheasants yeah. like right in Draper, Utah, and that is a thing yeah. of the past. You, you like that oh, is just it is um it's all developed there. In fact, we used to hunt deer on the South Mountain, just south of, on the south end of the valley there. And yeah, that's right. that's a thing of the past, man. You can't really in you, that mountain. It's all that developed. mountain is
1: almost gone now <laughs> oh totally man they,
0: they built <laughs> yeah. neighborhoods up there in fact in high school we'd go up there and we'd like we'd uh light fires and hang out on friday night after a football game kind of thing you know and right. uh, the whole team our, our our whole football team we'd cruise up there all we all had these you know pickup trucks and we'd drive up there and light these big fires and every once in a while somebody'd find to somehow acquire a bottle of vodka and we'd all take a sip and, uh, you know, pass out around the fire kind of thing. And sure. it, it was just, it was just a, a totally different world. So anyway, I oh, cut you off on the, but I, I get excited when I hear about that kind of stuff, because, uh, that was, that was my stomping grounds, dude.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's very relatable. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's, that's where my dad grew up. And then, um, the him and my mom moved to uh southwest wyoming early 70s and they're they are still there um so they've been there a long long time what took Uh, Work. so my dad he uh he he graduated from granite high school in 1958 or nine i think it was and joined the marine corps i was in the marine corps for eight years um he was married prior to being married to my mom and he and his first wife, they had five kids. They had two sets of twins.
2: Wow. In, no
1: kidding. In 11 months. Yeah. So my oldest brother and sister, Stephen and Stephanie, they were born June 24th of 1961. And then the next set of twins, Scott and Jeff, they were born June 2nd, 1962. So they got, you know, instant Holy family. Cow. And the year,
0: Holy right? cow, man. The diaper, yeah. the diapers in oh, that oh. house, those first couple of years. Oh, I know.
1: Right. Jeez. And then, And then the next year they had, had another baby. Uh, so that was busy. Um, and then they, they later divorced and my mom and dad married in 1966. My older brother, Jason was born in 68. And then, uh, my dad took a job. He, in the meantime, he was driving truck. My mom grew up on the, on the East coast in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And my dad was driving truck back and forth, you know, uh, trying to support his family and, uh, was divorced, but still, you know, paying child support, um, yeah. was out of the Marine Corps at the time. And, um, and he, uh, uh, ended up meeting my mom back East. She was, a uh, in between years of college and, and was a waitress at a truck stop diner. And, and that's where they met and, and got married, been married. I don't know, 1966 married still, yeah. uh, had
0: 50, my years. Older,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, My older brother, Jason, he was born in 68. They got married, moved back to Utah, uh, lived up in Roy. And then, uh, you know, things were kind of starting to boom in Rock Springs in the early 70s. Uh, A lot of oil and gas. Uh, They were building a big power plant there, the Jim Bridger uh, power plant. I know it. yeah. So a lot those, of boom and stuff was going on. They Go have
0: those uh, they have those what do they call that R- lime rock mines uh, some kind of soda ash
1: mines, trona mines.
0: Yeah, so they make like the arm and hammer baking soda yes. and stuff out of those yep. and and so yep. the, and what was crazy about that part of Wyoming is you'd be driving on these <laughs> lost highways, you'd think you, you know you're out in the middle of nowhere, you'd come around this corner and all of a sudden there's this giant facility. And you yeah. know, I found these by accident because I was a I was a roofing uh, manufacturer rep, and those kind of facilities needed really good roofs, right? And so I'd have to go right. find these things out in the middle of nowhere, and that's that's how I ended <laughs> up fishing. All I'd go out there pretending like I was working, which I did a little bit, but I'd end up fishing most of the day. So
1: anyway, well, that's yeah. good. You got and you got paid to do it. Even better. Yes, sir. I sure did. Yeah. Yeah. So my dad, he, uh, he took a job up there. I don't remember. Um, it might've been like a truck driving job, but then eventually he, uh, ran the transportation. He was a transportation head for the school district for, uh, the bus barns and stuff. And then in 1977, he, uh, got into law enforcement. Um, and so, and, and he eventually retired from that, but oh, really, he, Uh, Yeah, worked for the Sweetwater County Sheriff's Office, ended up serving as a two term sheriff there um, at at the end of his tenure with the sheriff's office and then retired from that. But uh, also went back in or joined the National Guard in the mid 80s and and retired from that as well, um, you know, when he turned 60. So uh, a a life full of of public service um, and and service, you know, through the military. It it led to several of my brothers joining the military. I didn't. I'm about the only one that didn't. Um, my my joke is that, is that the military wasn't cut out for me, but uh, anyways, it wasn't, was, wasn't in the cards, but I had two brothers that were in the Marine Corps. Uh, another one that was in the, um, Wyoming and Utah national guard. And then two brothers that were in the army eventually
0: ended up as green Berets. So, Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Well, tell all your uh, Marine relatives that I say, semper fi.
1: I sure will. I sure will. <laughs> And yeah. so how so, did
0: that tie into your, like your personal hunting, uh, in terms of, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're talking about growing up in an area that's super prevalent with mule deer, uh, and yeah. big mule deer, uh, um, right. and, and just this, this, uh, in the, in the prong, the antelope, you know, there, I mean, that part of Wyoming, I've always wanted to hunt that for, for pronghorn. Uh, I never had some big ones out there. Oh man.
1: Yeah. It's. It's tough to draw. I, I haven't hunted a lot myself just because those licenses are so hard to draw, but you know, just, uh, going out with my dad and my older brother, when I was young, when I wasn't old enough to hunt, but going out in the field with them when, when they would hunt and just kind of, you know, scratched that itch for me and kind of planted the, planted the seed. And I got bit by the bug and, you know, I just couldn't wait until I was old enough to hunt. You know, I just, Oh, and finally, finally it came, you know, I was old enough to, go to Hunter's Ed and pass my Hunter's Ed and, and be able to go and hunt with my dad and my older brother and maybe carry, I was the one carrying a rifle as well. Uh, so that Mm -hmm. meant a lot, but yes, spending a lot of time hunting mule deer, uh, elk, and occasionally, you know, draw, be lucky enough to draw an antelope tag and, and, um, and go, but then, uh, I just couldn't get enough of being out of doors. And in fact, my, my grades <laughs> suffered as a result because there was a lot of times that I'd leave the house in the morning and go to the school and walk in one door and out the back door and back out in the boonies I was hunting and you know, get <laughs> home and have blood on me or mud or whatever. And it's like, uh, you know, my parents asked me, what, what class were you in today? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I just. Doing as much of that as we could, friend and I, you know, we got into hunting waterfowl a little bit, being right there on the Green River, close to Green River, and you throwing a spread of decoys out, not knowing what we were doing. Didn't care. We were outside, getting wet and cold, and having fun.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely.
1: So all of you know all of that stuff just kind of fed my knack for wanting to be outdoors and, and wanting to hunt, and it just couldn't get enough of it. And then you know to be able to come to this part of the state and. uh you know, have an opportunity to guide and learn from other hunters and other people how to be not only a better hunter, but also a guide. I, you know, I think, I think there's, there can be a difference between the two because yeah, you know, us ourselves as individual hunters, we can stalk to within range and, and, and assess things and judge them. But now we add somebody else to the element that's, um, not familiar with the with the terrain and the territory and, and you know all of the environmentals that go with it um and you know trying to talk them into stuff and communicate with them and you know locating game and say you know hey i've got something found here what do you think at were? you know and they say i don't even see where you're looking um and you know you just say over there like you know over there where so being able to communicate with them and talk to them and talk them in on something to be able to you know, look at it and say, you know, yes or no, you know, all, all of that stuff. It's, 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 extremely gratifying. Uh, and it's helped prepare me that now that my kids are old enough, that I've got that experience doing that stuff, that now it's just kind of second nature with my kids. And, um, I find it more gratifying watching them pull the trigger than I ever remember myself being, you know, as happy or satisfied doing it for
0: myself. Man, I'm always fascinated with that, like the, the perspective see, I get, let me back up. I I love doing this podcast because you know, the base basically, so for listeners to know, like how we got kind of hooked up here, uh, to do this is, you know, we are like friends on Instagram is that what you say? Right friends or I I guess we follow each other on Instagram
1: or follow each other. Yeah. We're creepers.
0: (laughs) We've been creeping on each other. And uh, eventually, I don't know who, who did what, but eventually one of us slid into each other's DMS and and we've been, we've been talking for a long time, just back and forth. And, and the cool thing about doing that from like my perspective, and, and I, I don't know how it is for you, but from my perspective, it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm just a dude, That is, you know, for my whole life, I've, I've never been like a world-class skilled hunter. I've been an average hunter. I've been, I've seen some great success and I've seen some massive failures and I've, I've had a lot of frustration and I've had a lot of uh, glory, if you will, you know, to to put it that way. Right. Sure. So, but but I'm just a dude that likes to get out there and hunt, and I, I'm so passionate about it, and I like to see what other people experience because I'm, I'm I love to learn from other people, and so you and I started chatting back and forth, and next thing you know, because I because I do this podcast, I'm like buddies with this dude who is a guide in Northeast Wyoming who has super deep uh, historical um, perception or perspective in the hunting space. And so it's like, you know, I get to benefit from that. I get to benefit from knowing you and, and, and kind of picking your brain on this kind of stuff. And one thing that really fascinates me, I guess that was a long way of getting to this point. One thing that really fascinates me and it always has is this guide slash outfitter industry. Um, and I'm, I'm super curious, like, what is it like as a guide in terms of a lifestyle? Because I have, like Fonzie, I've never been on a guided hunt. I, I've never, well, no, that's not true. I did go on one in uh, Mesquite, Nevada on a wild boar hunt because, but that yeah. wasn't like a true guided service. It was, they own the land on the Virgin River and they drove us out on four wheelers and they're like, yeah, somewhere in here, there's going to be a boar. Uh, we'll come check on you and bring you lunch. And, and that, that was the guide service, you know, or whatever. Right. So. So I've never actually been on like a guided hunt and I'm just curious what it what it's like what as a as a lifestyle as a guide. Can you walk us through that a little bit?
1: Yes, it, it it's it, I find it to be I find it to be very rewarding and gratifying. Um you meet some extremely interesting people. Um I've had the privilege of hunting actually with literal billionaires. People that have, you know, just stupid money, um, and and you get a one-on-one with them and have conversations, and they and you know the ones that I've met, they're they're just regular people. They're very successful. They're very smart, but you know they're family men. They you know they have feelings too, um, and you know they have things that that get them. Going and you know their their jobs and their uh, businesses and everything else that kind of gets them up and keeps them going every day.
2: But yeah, you know
1: that's not, not necessarily what gets them going type of deal. Um, and and hunting with a blue collar guy that's that saved his money for you know three four years to be able to come out west on a once in a essentially a once in a lifetime deal because. You know, he watched his dad, he, his entire childhood growing up, reading Outdoor Life or whatever, you know, hunting magazine, and they'd have the annual, you know, mule their publication or whatever, or elk, and and the dad just couldn't wait for that because he was living vicariously through somebody else's article, but mm. never got to go. And, and that guy knew what it meant to his father to be able to go and do that. So he went and wow. did it in honor of his father. And I've seen grown men shed tears. And I'll tell you what, that's pretty special to be able to be a part of something like that. One, one case in particular, a few years ago, there was a man that he had booked to hunt with us. And right before he was scheduled to come out and hunt, his son, uh, his adult son, unexpectedly died. Um, oh, no. And, you know, so um, he, he, had, he had booked through uh, a booking agency with us. So, you know, there was a contact, kind of a middleman that was a contact. And the guy called and said, hey, this is what happened. I said, No problem. We'll roll into next year um you know yeah. that's that's an unforeseen circumstance that's part of our refund policy you know i'm going to honor that and uh so you know the next year came around and, and you you could see there was kind of something missing there was kind of an empty spot in him but you know i thought well i'm gonna i'm gonna do everything physically possible in my hands and, and my control that to try to make this you know, a a memorable experience for this man. He was a a good man and a family man and just a blue collar worker. He'd actually, he was from Minnesota. He'd actually come out to Wyoming several times over the years on DIY public land hunts and just never connected on the buck of his dreams. You know, he said Mm -hmm. a four point muley buck, you know, just a good solid 160, 165 class deer. That was his dream buck. And he had never connected on that, but that's what he wanted to do. So uh, we're just hunting, looking for deer, and, and found a actually a really cool buck that was about 30, 31 inches wide, but he was just a big two by three. You know, oh, geez. Didn't Score yeah. that well, but I mean, cool. Me I would have shot him any. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just something unique and and kind of off the wall. And he's like, yeah, that's a great buck and big old mature buck, but I'm just I've got my sights set on a four po- uh, on a four point muley. I said, okay, man. You you paid. I'm just I'm just showing you around. I'm just putting deer in front of you, the, the best that I can. And eventually, you know, we kind of um, there's a lot of emotional roller coasters that go with that because you know, uh, deer hunting is active first light, last light type of deal. And, and antelope are active all hours of the day. But you know, if you get out first light, and you're seeing bucks leaving the feed ground, headed to their bedding ground, and you know, you're excited. And then, and then it just kind of, you know, dies off as they go to bed. And, you know, you kind of hit a low spot and then uh, I'm not seeing much. And then, you know, actually catch one up in the middle of the day and, you know, get a surge of adrenaline again. And you're kind of back on that high and have several of those, you know, in a day, but then you kind of do it for two or three days and you're like, Ooh, this is, this is kind of a uh, tiring, you know, it, it, this is it takes tough, a toll yeah. on you. Right. But then you get water involved or, you know. The environmentals that'll screw you up—the wind shifts on a stalk and bust, bust the deer out, and you know all the other things that can happen—you know they, they happen as well. But uh, you know, so we're so about the third day of the hunt. It's it's kind of rainy and snowy and not very good, but sure enough, we found a, a bunch of bucks bedded up out of the wind, and uh, I think there was about seven or eight bucks in this bunch. And sure enough, there's a there's a good solid 4.165 inch deer in the bunch, and he said, "Yeah, that's that's mine." that's the one I want and uh, so I can't remember what he was shooting for a rifle but he didn't feel very comfortable shooting to like 350 maybe 400 yards I'm like well I've got all reliable here with me I've got a, a, a 243 that I've kind of put together to be a, a long-range rifle and use it for varmint hunting and and um, um, co- competitive shooting and things like that and it's just old trusty old reliable it's always with me so I had that and I said well you're absolutely more than welcome to use my rifle and I'll kind of help you with it and and the scope and you know adjusting to the elevation and how to hold the wind and all of this and that and he's like sure I'm I'm comfortable with that so we were able to sneak within range about 325 yards and these bucks were bedded I said hey we'll just you're set up you're in a good shooting position this deer isn't really presenting a shot but they're not going anywhere they're just bedded chewing their cut I said maybe uh maybe put the crosshairs on his on his neck and I took the magazine out and I said, just dry fire. See what happens. You know, just cycle the bolt in and get a good solid rest and good steady squeeze and dry fire. And, you know, I've found over the years having somebody do that, if they have the time to do that, have them do that kind of kind of settles them down and calms them just down a little bit. Them, gets yeah, their, yeah, that makes sense. It gets, their, it gets their breathing a little better under control. And, um, you know, they're not anticipating that break. And I've heard a lot of people do that and they'll that trigger will break and you know exhale it's like hey you're holding your breath it's like oh i was i was wasn't i so i said hey you got that out of the way go ahead so anyways he's going through this and you know eventually the, the deer get up and kind of mill around and had no clue we were there they're up stretching and finally the buck presented a shot and he made a great shot on him um and, and killed him so we got all our gear loaded back up and, and got around to the other side over there where he was. And uh, and I got to watch that man walk up to him and, and hold that deer in his hands and kind of look skyward and back at the buck and, and saw him cry. I'm like, huh. that's why I do it. That's wow. that's my why. You know, yeah. to, be, to, to be able to be a part of something like that, that's somebody else's dream and memory and, you know, uh, that's pretty special that I get to be able to to be a part of something like that. And, you know, th- not everybody does that. You know, the majority of people, you know, there's exceptions on every side of, of the rule, right? Oh, for you know, sure. You'll, you'll get the occasional asshole that, you know, if you lost him in the bottom of a, of a deep badger hole, you're pretty sure nobody would miss him. But unfortunately <laughs> you can't do that. But, you know, those guys are very far and few between <laughs> and, and the guys that are the good guys, you know, just kind of cancel them out. But, you know, just getting to meet people, you know, everybody's got a story, right? Um, yeah. Every Everybody's got perspective. And so you get to visit with people and hear hear their life. You get to spend a lot of time with
0: somebody in the vehicle, just driving around, looking at country and looking at wildlife
1: and, and it's, have some it's an intimate, interesting conversations. It's
0: an intimate you know, time together. It's like, uh, very, you know, you guys are, you guys are together. There's a, there's a goal, there's a mission. And I always found like you can sit next to somebody on an airplane or you can, you know, waltz into a bar and sit next to somebody and have a few beers and strike up a little conversation and spend a few hours with them. That, that kind of relationship, and getting to know somebody on that kind of level is so different than spending a few hours with a mission and a mission is hunting and and finding that mule deer or whatever.
1: And the only, and especially, especially when both of you have the same mission.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. You you guys have, you you guys have a goal to achieve. And I think that, that it, it like, it helps it so that you develop a bond uh, faster than, than, you know, other circumstances. So, Mm -hmm. Um, I, the, the one thing that I always respect uh, with, with guides in outfitting out, you know, companies or, or whatever. Well, here's, uh, let me rephrase that. The one reason why I would be interested, because you know, you know how the hunting community is. You have people that are like, oh, well, they used a guide. They, they went with an outfitting service and, and blah, blah, blah. Or, oh, no, he's a hero because he's a DIY guy. What, one thing that I, would encourage people to like think about and and i'm going to use fly fishing for an example because this is this is my personal experience i thought i was the bomb diggity bomb at fly fishing this was years ago years and years ago um and and i i would go up and and i would catch fish periodically and Mm -hmm. I, i knew what flies to use i knew what how to set my leader and and build a build a good tapered leader, you know, and and tip it and all that kind of stuff, and put the right fly in front of the fish, and and yada yada yada. I can bore people to death with that.
2: <laughs> right. So
0: I I did all that, and I, I thought I was okay. So my comp- but the company that I worked for at the time had like this quota of uh, like sales volume kind of thing. If if you uh, reached a certain number. They would send you on this guided fly fishing trip out of, um, uh, I'm going to draw a blank, Island Park?
1: Oh, yeah, Island Park, I know, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. So up there at Island Park, they put you in these little cabins, and they take you out. So I thought I was pretty good at fly fishing. But I go, so I I achieved this objective, and they sent me up to Island Park. Um, This is when I worked down in Utah. They sent me up to Island Park, uh, and I go with this guy. And his name was Rod, and he was the fly fishing guide. And they put us in these um, drift boats. And oh yeah, w- I start going down the river, and y- you know, I I kind of I was young. I was I I think I was like twenty eight, twenty nine, and I kind of had this, you know, I what am I going to learn from a fishing guide kind of thing? You know what I mean? Sure. And um, not bad, but just enough to 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 be an idiot. So. Uh, I start going, and this guy's name is Rod. And so what what was funny is everybody was kind of laughing. They're like, oh, you got assigned Rod. He's fishing Rod, and he is the fishing right, Nazi. Said, yeah. Right, he's the fishing Nazi, <laughs> and I didn't understand what they meant. And so we get out on the river, and this guy, he's like yelling at me if I'm casting wrong, or if I'm not mending the line right, or if I'm, you know, and and he's like, "Give me your line," and and I, so I'd yank my line out of the water. He'd grab that, swap a fly out in like, I, I mean, a minute and a half max, max. Wow. this guy was so fast, <laughs> and he'd hand it back, and he's like. Hit that, hit that uh, riffle right there in the water. Hit the riffle, and and I'd, I'd hit right in the middle. He'd be like, "No, no, back it up. Hit it right in the b- before the riffle
2: starts." And he's like yelling
0: at me, and and all of a sudden I started nailing these trout, and he it, like he would get mad if I wasn't listening. But when I caught a fish, he was so happy and he was so thrilled. I mean, th- and he was an older guy, uh, you know. He kind of probably mid sixties or so. And he he could row these drift boats like you wouldn't believe. And yeah. um, th- I spent two days with this guy. And by the time my time with Rod was done, I went from an amateurish, okayish fly fisherman to an expert. But it, I, I went home and every single time since that trip that I have hit a river with a fly rod, I have yet to get skunked. I can always catch a fish right? That's cool. And and so that's what I think would be my motivation to hire a guide uh, to go on like an elk hunt or a big mule deer hunt or, or something like that where, you know, I know that I'm okay at it now, but somebody that's a guide has a different perspective because this is their day job. This is what they do. They're out there. They see so many different scenarios, so many different circumstances. They watch this behavior from early season to late season and all, all the time in between, they have such a like locked in keyed in uh, perspective on these animals from behavior to uh, you, you know just everything that goes into being able to locate close with and 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 actually target an animal and and uh, make it happen you know notch that tag right uh, it's deep it's very deep and and very like a guy like me would get a lot out of that and that's that's what my motivation would be because I would go on one hunt with a good guide like you or somebody. And I feel like it would change my life in terms of my skill level, because I, I would be able to pay attention get to know somebody that, that does this for a living. Uh, and that's sure. my perspective on guides and outfitting. And that's why I encourage people, especially like new hunters, like take your, take your first trip, go, go hire an outfitter and go with them because they're, you're going to learn more in, in five days with a guide that an experienced guide than you will in five years of trying to do it on your own. What say you?
1: No, I, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with that, you know, and, and um, there's a lot. Exactly. Going going with a guide, you're cutting out a, a huge part of that learning curve for yourself, right? Yeah. You know, because I, I, I've been doing this for 24 years now, and there's it's been a steep learning curve for me. But, you know, luckily, I just got done with that client, and I got another one coming in two days. So I've got another opportunity to learn from the mistake that I just made um and and capitalized on that and so yeah I, I think you're absolutely right just that experience you know Rod had the knowledge and the experience of fishing those waters and how those fish behave in those waters mm-hmm. and, and 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 to tell you what to cast and how to cast it and where to cast it you know um that that matters the same same deal with being in you. know, in this part of the woods. Hey, I know mule deer habitats uh, or excuse me, I know mule deer habits and, and their habitat, where to look for them. Well, know, and what, specifically, what's going keep them around
0: or what's not. And especially like in that kind of, what's cool about that is, is mule deer are mule deer, right? But right. the mule deer here in North Idaho are going to be, the, their behavior is going to be a little bit different than what they are in Northeastern Wyoming, And and that's because the terrain is so different. And so, but you can, you could learn things in a different, like if I came there, for example, and learn things about what you could teach me between behavior, habits, habitat, feeding patterns, all all the things that we want to know. Um, And, and it's going to be slightly different than what they are here but I could bring what I learned there and apply them here because there's going to be a lot of crossover and a lot of similarities at, that maybe you absolutely. just couldn't identify because of the terrain here. It's so brushy here. And you're talking about these wide right. open landscapes. Uh, it, it's I, I, and I love that wide open landscape. That's what I grew up hunting, And, right. and so uh, I just, yeah, I, I can't, I'd love to do something like that at some point. so at some point in the next, I don't know, few years, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I think it would, it'd be a game changer. Good.
1: Well, I hope, uh, I hope I'm, I'm privileged enough to be able to go, to go with you and take you out. That would
0: be fun. Well, it just depends on, uh, it, 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 it just depends on points for me, man. I I'd love sure. to come down and hunt with you. <laughs> so yeah. I've got, I've got like two points in Wyoming right now. Good. So good. Well, uh, let's, let's shift this conversation for a minute and talk about before we hit record. Uh, we were kind of discussing some of the, the, the podcasts that I've been doing over the winter, um, you know, specifically with like Chris Rowe and Guy Duplanchier, uh, yes. and, and talking about our, is hunting conservation, um, talking about the future of hunting. Um, what's, uh, I, I'd be super curious to know you've listened to those episodes with those guys. What's like your reaction to that?
1: um i'm i'm really appreciative of those uh those episodes because i think you're having the conversation that needs to be had earlier you said you know talking about outfitting you said you know some guys say look down their nose because that guy went with an outfitter or you know this guy we put him on a pinnacle because he's all diy public land whatever and, and killed whatever you know great trophy animal and you know, we have to remember that those things are sometimes the, the exception. But what what is um, I think potentially dangerous there is the polarization, is the categorization, lumping people into these different categories or with labels. That the one common word in all of those descriptions is hunter. It doesn't matter if it's you're a DIY hunter or a public land hunter or a private land hunter, or you go with an outfitter or you're a long range rifle hunter or you're a, a hunt with a crossbow or you hunt with a recurve or a, a compound bow, whatever. You're still a hunter. All of those people are still hunters. But when we when we engage in um, creating those dividing lines, we're doing the bidding for those that oppose us. You know, I, I think one thing that has been brought out with you having all those conversations with those different guys is you is you see that those that oppose us are extremely organized, and they are very intelligent. They're not dumb people. Yes. I think often, oftentimes, the stigma has been that oh, those are just you know uh, dumb, Kool Aid drunk college kids or whatever that have been brainwashed by their college professors, and they really don't have a grasp on reality. They're just you know blow with the wind. Um, those those people those kind of people do belong to those organizations, but they're not the ones that are pulling the strings and pushing the buttons. Yeah, the people that are in charge are very very sophisticated and smart and um, very well organized. You know, one thing that I think that people don't realize is a lot of those anti-hunting organizations um, they might not sound anti-hunting in the title. Of the the organization, but they are very anti hunting. Um, is that because they are a nonprofit? They qualify for not only tax exemption but to be subsidized by tax dollars. So they have people that that is their nine to five job is to be lobbyists, activists. Um, you know, getting information out. Whether it be you know misinformation or uninformation, they're still getting information out to the masses, and they're doing that with you and I's tax dollars. You know, you and I are working our various jobs, doing whatever we're doing to, and we're occupied with that, providing for our families and and whatever other activities that we're involved in. You know, giving back to our communities or, or whatever. Right, we're busy yep. with that. These people, that is their job. That's their nine to five. A lot of people don't realize that, that, you know, you get home from a long day's work, whatever you're doing, and you just want to sit down on the couch and watch a little TV and then, you know, have something to drink or whatever, or, or, uh, you know, just to unwind and relax. Well, guess what? They're coming home to do that too after they've just done everything they can for the last eight hours to take something from you that you cherish and value. Um, exactly. that puts us, that puts us at a bis- bit of a disadvantage right out of the gate. But then when we do this bidding for them by creating, you know, further creating these dividing lines amongst us, we're just making their job so much easier. Uh, a great analogy that I heard one time by a guy, you know, I might not. Okay. Um, for hypothetical, for example, I, you know, I, I, Shoot or hunt primarily with rifles, and 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 capable of being able to shoot long range, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you know my neighbor friend, uh, somebody else that I know, he he hunts with a bow, is primarily. You know, so we've got that uh, going against us, and 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 but we need to come together for this for this town hall meeting that we're gonna try to band together and and create some something that's gonna benefit. You know the better good, but not either one of us individually.
2: Yeah. Well, you
1: yeah. know, so so this analogy is um, all right. You guys might not necessarily agree on this. Well, how many times do you and your wife go out for supper and you can't agree what to eat? You know, where or what you're going to eat. Every Does time. that mean that you are right? You know, and then and then the joke is eventually you come around to go eat where your wife wants to eat, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, <yep>. But it, <laughs> if but you're a smart anyways, man, anyways. Exactly. But just because you and your wife can't agree on what to eat or where you're gonna eat, does that mean that you don't eat? Well of course not. Nor that does it mean nor silly. does it
0: nor does it mean you're gonna get a divorce because you can't no. you can't figure out where you're gonna eat, you know.
1: Right, exactly. But people will hang up on that, uh on their differences that are, you know, far less than what they actually have in common. They'll hang up on that and, um, you know, and then get to the keyboard and social media and absolutely tear you know somebody else down. I'm like, come on, please, we're better than this. Um, let's get over that crap that doesn't matter. Uh, another example here a few years ago when the Wyoming Wildlife Task Force was first organizing, um, they were having small town hall meetings uh, to try to just figure out, hey, you know what what's what topics are on the mind of, of you sportsmen, of you outdoorsmen, Locally, that we can take this to the to the, the statewide task force and and talk to, about. Um, and there was actually a guy in that meeting because he is a, a recurve hunter. He was looking down his nose and scoffing at guys that hunted with compound bows and um, mm. uh, and crossbows. And you know, he said those guys aren't real archers. And I said, hey, guess what? You don't get to decide. If you look at the definition in the rules and regulations of the Wyoming Game and Fish, according to them, all three of you are archers. So it it doesn't matter what you think. You know, the law, the regulations say that. So get over yourself and work together with these guys. Hey, who knows? You might find a new best friend out of the deal, right?
0: You know, that's, that's one of the things that I have kind of pounded over the years is, you know, you... You might have a let's say we have a diehard trad bow, and you know I've got a buddy, Nate Davenport. He's been on the show. In fact, he killed a monster bear last season. No, no, two seasons ago with his with his uh, recurve, or uh-huh. and and so the dude is super technical when it comes to bow hunting, right? right i'm not i'm a monkey with my bow i'm like people are like (laughs) oh what's your foc i'm like what the fuck does that mean man like i I don't know what you even mean by that i just get my bow i take it to this guy i know that uh tunes it up for me and and my other buddy eric over at Westwood archery and he, and he puts strings on it and and then what I do is I go out and I practice with it a lot and and it makes me pretty lethal you know I, I don't know all the sure. technical stuff but does that mean that my highly technical trad bow only guy and I can't be friends no hell no that's not what that means no. and and the problem the problem when we get into that dynamic, because it, it happens everywhere, is is it goes against the grain of the American ideal of we are all individuals pursuing our own destiny. And so we've got to respect right. that. And so that's like on a micro level. And then you could take that to a macro level where the anti hunters, they're they're the ones that started this war. You know, we we right. didn't. We, we just wanted to... And, and that's a big difference between hunters and anti-hunters. Hunters just want to be people that uh, live their lives and pursue the things that make them happy or, or the things that fulfill them. And they want to have this hunting lifestyle to provide for their family and fill their freezers and have these experiences and have these memories and share it with their family. This is just what we do where the differences is a Nana Hunter is an activist. They are actively
2: Absolutely. activists
0: against our lifestyle because they have this cause. They believe in this cause. And the one thing like, and, and I, I don't know if Chris Rose going to end up listening to this, but Chris, uh, I cannot seem to get through an episode without echoing your um premise of value sets and so I say value sets all the time now and it's something I got from Chris Rowe over this winter <laughs> and so I uh, I want well, to talk and it's about good
1: it. and it's it's yeah, it's absolutely applicable too
0: it absolutely is these people have very different value sets than my value sets. The difference is, is I don't take or interpret my value sets as something that I need to infringe on another person's lifestyle. And they do. So they take that value set and they feel like they have the right to tell me what I can and can't do because their value set in their mind is more important and more set up on this moral pedestal than, than my value set. Even though from my perspective, they're wrong. I am a normal human. I'm the same human that was doing this, you know, uh, 2000 years ago. So th- that that is where I get, I, I get like spitting mad over, over that kind of thing. And so you could take it on a macro level, like I was talking about, where it's like this trad bow hunter versus a bow hunter, or, or even just an archery hunter in general versus a rifle hunter. And then you compound that, uh, on this micro level, where we're at each other's throats, and then and then on a much bigger level, you've got the anti-hunting versus hunting, and so we've got to keep in mind that when if if you've got this like proclivity to infringe your belief system and your value set on other people because you think you're more important or you think your values are are more important or you think you have this moral high ground. That's where you're wrong. Maybe their value set is just as important to you as it is to them. And if they want to hunt with a crossbow or a trad bow or a compound bow, then we all need to just take a step back and respect that individual's choice and not have this mindset that it's my way or the highway because everybody else is, is, is dumb or, or they're less skilled or they're cheating the system or, or all these things that I see play out on social media.
1: Yeah you're you're absolutely right and you know I think it's as simple as um you know the golden rule since that we've heard you know from our childhood right do unto others as you would have done unto you you know uh, would you like somebody treating you or talking to you or looking down their nose at you or, or being critical of you and your choices uh the way you are you know to others um and so if i i think if we simplify it in that manner then it's like oh okay and let's just let's just hope for the best for our neighbor right let's
2: let's
1: let's encourage them let's be happy in their success let's cheer them on i think that's you know kind of uh the commandment love you know love your neighbor that that's what that means it's not that you're in love with them it's just you want the best for them you want them to be happy and and live their life in the manner that they see fit just the same as you, and that's the problem with uh, when we get to legislating morality. You know, whose whose um, version of morality are we subscribing to right now? Because you know, there was there was a time that it was deemed moral to take Jews and throw them in a gas chamber, right? Yeah. yeah well. Yeah. Guess what? That's not, and you know, and I think as we study history and and look at it, we can look back and see that those, those kind of things are, are what led to the great division that, that eventually led to downfalls of societies. And I I think we're, unfortunately, I think we're trending the same way because it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, A friend of mine, a guy that's actually hunted with us um, from Alaska. He lives in Alaska now. He grew up in Minnesota and he's got some property, in Alaska, but he just he sent me the um, uh, results of a of a ruling. The Ninth Circuit Court ruled in favor of I can't remember the name of the federal agency, but there's a federal agency in Alaska that that essentially is now taken over control of the wildlife management on sixty percent in sixty percent of
0: Alaska. So all of oh, the federal yes, lands in Alaska. Yes, yes, yes. I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and I'm like, holy cow, that's scary. You know, when you see all of the other things that are going on societally with uh, whether it be banks and you know other economic markets um, and and food and all this crazy stuff. I mean, it's it's hard looking at this stuff. It's hard to not have a conspiratorial mindset because I don't think a lot of these things are theories. I think a lot of them are are coming to fruition and are are factual. But when, you know, okay, maybe maybe a federal bureaucracy managing the wildlife in in sixty percent of Alaska is, is not a bad thing. But the federal government does not have a very good track record. Um and, you know, they a lot of times they side with these anti hunters and these activists. Um, that's
0: because these activists, goes that goes back to the point you were making earlier, Fonzie, where it, we're talking about like, you know, they're smart, they're organized, they're well put together, right. they're well funded, they have infiltrated some of these federal agencies, and that's what's going to take hold. They're going to sink yes. their teeth into some of the wildlife management issues on, on a federal level, and and that's what we have to keep in mind while we're sitting here arguing about, you know, uh whether or not a diy hunter is as you know pure as a guy that goes hunting with an outfitter um while while we're doing right. that and being b- blindfolded by that premise these these progressive leftists are infiltrating uh these these federal agencies under the name of like you know and the the environment and animal protectionism right. and and all these things that we just I, I saw this interesting meme going back to what you said there uh, on social media somewhere. I don't remember what it, what which one it was on, but it was like, um, I I just know it. I just know it. Uh, the the whole, I was gonna be a conspiracy theory, but I or I was gonna be a conspiracy theorist, but I'm worried that the conspiracy theories are all running out because they're all coming true. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> right? And, and it's so true. I mean, if you look at what you know, I people like me uh, get portrayed as these extremists sometimes, and I'm not an extreme guy, man. I because no. because I took a step back. I'm going to give you a great example. We can go down whatever rabbit hole you want, but I took a step back and I thought, okay, the people that are propagating me or and, and are are pushing me to get this untested vaccine, right? right and 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 they're they're making this big stink out of it all the people that are doing that are the same people that profit from it and and exactly. so i i chose not to and they're like oh my god you're an experi you're you're a conspiracy theorist you're an extreme right winger you're this you're that and 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 then the same people are all telling me that i am against the human race if i think masks aren't effective right and, and then they're like you know they're demonizing us for that and then come to find out on on both accounts the things that i was concerned with were true and and the You're things right. that millions of people were concerned with were true they lied to us and so don't tell me that i'm a conspiracy theorist because i think for myself so now in today's day and age in order to be labeled a conspiracy theorist you have to think for yourself and question things, and and that sure. is the kind of stuff that is. When when you talk about the the historical factors in in the history of the earth, where societies, great societies, have fallen, this is the kind of stuff that creeps into these societies that crushes societies. And so you're absolutely right. Like, what are we supposed to think? Are we just supposed to sit here and take the you know black eye after black eye and and be like, oh yeah, no, okay, whatever, whatever the uh, the federal bureaucracy tells us, that's got to be the gospel. Uh, Whatever these wokesters uh, deem socially acceptable, that's what we gotta we gotta go with. Or do we say, you know, enough of this? Enough of this shit. I'm not going to sit here and listen to your reality hating uh biological and foundational unrealities. Tell me that that's what truth. Like for example, uh somebody somebody deciding that suddenly after so many years on the planet they're biologically a different gender. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to go along with that stuff, and I don't mean to be bring in all these social, political kind of you know things into the mix of this conversation. But it all ties how into do how do you not? It all ties into this anti-hunting movement because the anti-hunting movement has has come out of these progressive, um, unconstrained type ideologies that that have developed and taken hold and and it gives these people that have no other purpose in life because we've got this first world thing going on where we're so comfortable in our lives that we have to attach ourselves to a cause and these people are so bored that they find this cause of being an anti-hunter sorry
1: yeah you're absolutely you No, you're absolutely correct and 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 so um i can't remember uh, that stuff is right out of the playbook. I don't remember if it's Rules for Radicals or the Communist Manifesto. But those, that yeah, is yeah, what yeah, you, do. Right. You, you You get with a cause and one that makes you feel good. So it's based on emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and forget fact, it doesn't matter because you have, it's emotionally charged. And And like, you know, the string pullers, the button pushers, they organize these useful idiots is essentially what they are because they are fueled by this emotion because it makes them feel good um and then when you try to tear people down uh you dehumanize them you label them extremists radicals what you know all of these all of these terms that we can label them and then that dehumanizes them we feel less about them uh when something bad happens to them you know we're, we're happy for uh you know bad things happening to other people um and and so those things those tactics i think it's Saul alinsky's rules for radicals i think it is too um i've read both of those books just to know what what i'm up against um there's another really good book that i i've read that's uh called the naked communist um guy by the name of cleon skals wrote it and i read it and uh i you know it's it just kind of exposes him, and and to mm-hmm. think that Karl Marx, the father the father of communism, you know he, he his death is so pathetic and pitiful. What a what a pathetic man that he ended up being at the end of his life. Um, yeah. But th- these are the same things that he did, and this is what's happening here. The ends justify the means, right? So, like, let's say for example, for wolves, we've been dealing with the wolves issue in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem since 1995. I remember I was a senior in high school when wolves were introduced into the greater, in the Yellowstone park in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. At least that's when they said they were released. I have a, a hankering to think that they were there before. Um,
0: well, you conspiracy but, you know, theorist, you?
1: Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, I, I personally have zero issue with a wolf. I would love to hunt one. They are a fascinating animal. They are extremely efficient at what they do. Um, they are wired to kill and they do it and they do it well. Yeah, it's unfortunate sure. that they've been able, to, been able to do it unchecked for as long as they have because um, there's a lot of numbers to support it, but they have been a a huge detriment to ungulates in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Some of the most coveted um hunting that there was for elk and moose around there is no longer exists. And it's and it's unfortunate to see that that happened. And 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 wouldn't you think that if these animal activists were were truly acting in the in the better half of these animals, that they wouldn't allow for this standby and allow for this wholesale slaughter that has taken place unchecked. Um, you know, so I, I think it's a bit of a contradiction in terms. But also in rules for radicals, the, one of the tactics is to control the language, that when you control the definition of the words used in, in a discussion, then you control the discussion. So uh, they, there's, I think, it, a lot of play on words. I'm certainly no scholar. I did take sophomore English twice in high school, but by no means does that qualify me as a scholar. Uh, I say that well, because it, I had to take it twice because I missed so much school my sophomore year. Anyways,
2: you're busy. Uh, hunting.
1: Right, priorities, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I you know, the definite mission words. You you'll hear them say a lot of times reintroduction. You know, whether it be into the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem or now into Colorado, or reintroducing wolves.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, it's interesting to most, reintroduce them when a pack already exists.
1: That or it's not even the same species of wolf, wolf that existed in, there in the first place. It's a much larger, uh, a much more evolved and adapted animal that came that come out of Canada. You know, the Canadian gray wolf. Mm-hmm. They're much larger, bigger feet, built to run on snow, built to run, uh, you know, on snow to run down herds of caribou, and and that's how they hunt. Um, my boss, um, Max, is his name, and he'll be eighty years old this fall. His uh, he he married into the ranch that that they operate, and he said that his father-in-law told him the last wolf that he knew of that was killed in this country was about 1921 and 1923, I think it was. Yeah. Um. Over over in Belfouche, South Dakota, at the Center of the Nation Museum, there's a a, a display of an old wolf. They called him Three Toes. You know, he was in and out of traps. Eventually, lost a a toe in a trap, but they finally got him. He was pretty hard on uh, livestock. But he, he hunted all by himself. He didn't hunt in packs like they do, uh, like these Canadian gray wolves do. So totally different mannerisms. So I believe that would be um, a timber wolf. Exactly. You know, timber wolves. That's what we had here were timber wolves. They were much smaller. Um, you know, as I understand it, a big timber wolf was probably 80 pounds, you know, maybe twice the size of, of, a, of a coyote. Yeah. Um, certainly not what, what these animals are now. And so they have totally different Mannerisms, um, but you know, left unchecked, they have taken a, a significant toll. I have no problem with these wolves, they do exactly what they're wired to do. However, I do take issue with a nameless, faceless, unelectable, unaccountable bureaucrat that seems nest that's that sees fit to sneak these wolves in in the dark of night when nobody's looking. Why? Is it because you're doing what you're telling me do, you're doing, or do I need to watch the other hand? Are the ends justifying the means? You know, in yeah. in you know almost 30 years of these wolves being in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, I know ranchers that have you know lifelong grazing permits that have let them go because the predation is too significant, um, and it's not all due to the wolves. The grizzly bears are pretty significant as well. Um, I know outfitters that have had camps that have turned their permits back because it was not profitable anymore. It was costing them money because they couldn't find the animals to hunt.
2: Yeah,
0: well, um, we've had that I here know, in Idaho I, too.
1: Right. You know, I know houndsmen that would chase cats that have lost, you know, prized um, hound dogs to wolves um, and, and not being able to retaliate or, you know, get any sort of retribution. In two thousand, I believe it was in fiscal year two thousand eight, in the state of Wyoming, the Game and Fish had had um, confirmed predation on um, on livestock. That the the estimate of the value of those animals was five about five hundred and sixty thousand dollars. I think it was. Mm-hmm. So the Wyoming Game and Fish had to pay um, those comp- that compensation. To those livestock producers for those confirmed kills. Now the actual loss was much more significant than that. Yeah. Well, where does the Wyoming where does the Wyoming Game and Fish come up with this five hundred and sixty five thousand dollars or whatever this total was to to pay these ranchers back for um, verified wolf kills on on livestock?
0: Well, it all comes out of tag sales.
1: Exactly, but that's something that they didn't have earmarked in their budget, so no, they have that's have pull, pull uh, it, it out of somewhere else. You it's know? the
0: excess—that's what people don't understand—is it's the excess funds that are generated through tax, uh, tax—I'm sorry, tag sales—that are supposed to be going towards the conservation efforts of of the wildlife. Exactly. But when you when you have to pull that out to reimburse ranchers for uh, you know loss on on uh, their their herds. Uh, because of wolf predation, that's that's cutting into the conservation efforts. So, so you know, it's just one of like a thousand examples uh, where these sure. wolf a- activists, you know, they put these wolves on a pedestal. They they act like they're the only species that matters on, on the face of the planet, and humans are aliens, so, you know, right. we shouldn't interact with them, and we shouldn't even be involved in, in anything that happens on Earth. Um, you, you know, they... What they're doing is detrimental to to the wolf, the 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 one species that they're trying to protect. Um, that is their, I guess, um, their focus on on trying to protect the wolf. Uh, the ends justify the means at all costs. Right. Has what has created, like the state of Idaho, taken matters into their own hands from a sense of the uh, Idaho is by far the most liberal, and I hate using the term liberal, but they are the most liberal state when it comes to wolf hunting and trapping. They have right. they have given every tool that they could possibly give to the hunter and trapper to help get these wolves under control because they are such prolific breeders. They have done so much damage to the state of Idaho because they were left so unchecked for so many years. Because what, and, you know, Colorado they have this fantasy that maybe you know they're they're going to release these wolves and they're going to have Coloradans are, are going to have a hunting and trapping season but the problem is is these pro wolf activists these protectionist groups they have their teeth already sunk into this liberal governor and this this uh all these commission commissioners that they're appointing uh that are essentially animal activists uh or or at least vaguely or or a mildly anti hunting uh, and very pro wolf and and these people have been like the population of of Colorado has been under the impression that uh you know CPW is going to come in and they're going to they're going to be like oh yeah we're going to manage these wolves for the people and the people are going to really love it and it's it's part of the natural landscape the the thing that they're they're not getting the information that they're not getting which does not come from CPW by the way Colorado Parks and Wildlife by the way right. um the the information that the the public is not getting is is f- coming from the CPW. They're not getting that information because they have they have muzzles. They can't talk about this. They can't express their opinions during this period of coming up with a wolf uh you know management plan. And so instead what they're getting is all the propagated information driven by the Wolf activist folks that are that are talking about how great it's going to be to have wolves in the landscape. They're not talking about the ninety percent reduction in elk numbers, the 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 insane revenue reduction that, that is going to come because of that. Because people are not going to want to go to Colorado to hunt elk anymore because the wolves have de- decimated the herds in the backcountry. So what's the point of going out of state to hunt a you know somewhere like Colorado? Um, where where the elk won't even talk anymore because they know that if they bugle or if they make a cow call, that's just ringing a dinner bell to a pack of wolves that might be in the area. Uh, they, they can't hunt them. They you know they can't find them. The elk numbers are way down. The population has moved on. Uh, you're probably going to see uh, elk kind of end up into the agricultural interface down at the bottom of the Rockies. You're also going to see them move out into the plains because elk, you know, Uh, By nature, they are a plains animal. They're going to go back there. Uh, They're going to get chased right out of the Rockies. And and these these wolves are to blame for that. And I am not saying that we need to annihilate and eliminate wolves at 100%. What I am saying is we need to disregard the wolf activists' opinions and focus on the science of this thing, which states specifically from experts that actually do this for a living and have been for a long time, that wolf management is essential to create a balance because it, because overpopulated wolves destroy the balance of the ecological systems on the landscape. So if you ignore that, that's where the wild game takes a hit. And that's where hunters in Colorado are going to suffer. And and that's... Yep, yep you're right. You know, and we went through it here in Idaho. And now we're just starting to get a handle on it. And that's because we do not have what Colorado has. And that is a progressive, leftist, liberal government that is all tied together and teamed up against everybody else. So, so hunters in Colorado they really don't have a voice on this issue, and that's what's scary. I don't want to see that spreading. Wyoming is the same way, from uh, you know, as what I was talking about with uh, with Idaho. Uh, you yes. guys, we we you don't have that that leftist leftist progressive ideology that has. Uh, essentially taken over the 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 state control and the state government the uh there's still a lot of common sense in our states there's just not in colorado i'm i, I hate to say it, like you know i don't mean to have this dark cloud raining down on on our hunters in colorado but man you guys are in trouble man you you have this progressive leftist liberal government like you're fucked i i, I just don't, I don't know you, you know what i mean
1: Right. You're, no, you're absolutely correct. Because, uh, you know, again, going back to how well organized, how sophisticated and how smart
2: these yeah. anti-hunters yeah, and, and activists design. are.
1: Absolutely. You know, they learned their mistakes from Wyoming, Montana and Idaho and, and their wolf management plans. And for a long time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife drug their feet on approving, um, you know, hunting seasons on these wolves in those three states, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And, uh, you know, eventually I think they could see the writing was on the wall, that it was just too much. And they, they had to do something um, because they were going to be, it was going to get ugly. You know, there was going to be people vigilante style taking into their own hands because their, their hands were forced. They didn't know what else to do. But, and now these activists in Colorado, they, they were very sneaky about it. They snuck it in on, uh, on, a, on, made it a ballot issue, um, and let people vote, you know, with their emotions and, and get it on the ballot because I know, they like, knew like what they, did they had think? the numbers to do
0: it. What did they think was going to happen there? The, you know, right. put it in the newspaper, put it on the, you know, local news channel <laughs> Hey, guys, living in downtown Denver, Colorado, that has right, no impact right. on, like, you don't live within uh, the, the actual habitat range of what wolves are going to inherit. Uh, but, hey, right. don't you think it would be cool to have wolves? They're so cool. They howl at the moon. Yeah, you know, and and so everybody that, 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 these aren't hunters. These are, most of the people that voted for this don't even go on nature hikes. Like their idea of nature is going to the city park and seeing a freaking bird, uh, a bluebird or a a robin making a nest in a tree underneath or or overlooking the the swing set and and having some so-called green space. They don't know what green space is. They don't know what nature is. And you're having them vote on, on something as consequential as wolves being introduced to the landscape in the state of Colorado? It is lunacy, man. It's lunacy. It it,
1: it absolutely is. But, you know, look at them. They they knew they could play that angle, and they were successful at it. But then also in the language of their uh, wolf recovery plan, as I understand it from listening to your podcast episode with uh, Guy and Chris, you know, I don't think it's anywhere in the language that hunting or trapping is used at all for the management and control of these animals. Yeah. Wyoming... with the exception of what's considered in the, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, the rest of the state wolves are still on the books on the state law as a predator. And in Wyoming, by definition of a predator, we can shoot them on site without a season, without a license, any take, anytime, anywhere. So when they get away, when they get away from there, you know, you see a wolf in this part of the country He's pretty thin and running ragged if he made it this far, because he's
2: been running and shot oh, at a man. long time.
0: Yeah, I can't but imagine they uh, in uh, that see,
1: neck of the woods. No, no, very few and far between. But, you know, I see this wolf issue with Colorado and Utah turning into a state's rights issue, because according to Wyoming's laws and rules and, and definition and language, if a wolf comes out of Colorado into Wyoming, and is causing trouble. Guess what? We can shoot it on site, no questions asked. Yep. Well, what if it's a collared wolf? What if it's DNAed back to this Colorado herd where they can't be hunted? And then, you know, Colorado steps all over the, the toes and the rights, and you know, you'll get some activist court like the Ninth Circuit Court or whatever, and they rule in favor of Colorado and violate Wyoming's, you know, state's rights um, in no, exactly. being able to manage their wildlife. You know, well, it's a it's a giant, for lack of a better term, a giant shit sandwich. No matter which way you look
0: at it, yeah, and and it's a shit sandwich that all the hunters in, in Colorado are going to have to take a bite of because Colorado has oh, two major bite. issue issues. They Colorado has two major issues on the when we're talking about wolves. The first one being is that the uh, the activists, well, well, let's go back to the wolf management plan. The wolf management plan initially, the, the first draft initially talked about as a last resort, some means to management would be hunting and trapping, okay? That proposal was thrown out and has since been replaced right. where that language was taken out. So at this point... The, the the most recent, and, and again, by the time this podcast drops, it, it could have changed again, but right. at, at this point, it is at a point in which there is no language where the lethal take of wolves in the state of contra- uh, Colorado will be acceptable. There's there's not going to be any lethal means. There's not going to be like a roadmap to you know, a certain recovery number of wolves and population number of wolves in which we can turn it over to the fish and game to allow hunting and trapping through management, which would generate revenue for the, the, the CPW in the state of Colorado because people would buy wolf tags and trapping tags and all that that other kind of stuff. So instead... They're faced with the same dilemma that California is, where we've got this—you know—you can't hunt mountain lions, uh, but they're overrunning everybody's neighborhoods and stealing Aunt Biddy's dogs, and so we have to hire, and the the taxpayer has to pay for these professional, you know, mountain lion assassins to come in and and take care of some of these uh, these mountain lions in in California. So that's the same thing that Colorado is going to have when it comes to wolves. The uh the second issue that Colorado faces uh with that is the dynamic of their political system there. Again, yes. the government is filled with these leftist progressives. In fact, they're also filled with uh the the commission is is, is on that side and all these agencies are, are on that side and so the the political dynamic in Colorado is way different than it is in Wyoming and Idaho and even in Montana. Right. Montana has some fairly progressive areas, but the but the lion's share of Montana is still pretty moderate to right leaning. And so they're you know a little bit more um, sensical and, and driven by the science in the state of Montana. Uh, the, actually I'm going to add a third issue to Colorado. I believe, um, I'm pretty sure I confirmed this, but now I'm like drawing a blank on it, but Colorado still falls within the, um, the states that are still under the, uh, you know, an endangered species act protections for wolves, the, yes. the Canadian gray wolf. Um, so they are still under that. And so getting over that hurdle is going to be a major, major deal. And even if they do they don't have the political backing that like Idaho and Wyoming have like we have people and and my advice by the way to coloradans is one of the most powerful lobbies and and uh, you know advocacy groups for western states is going to be your cattlemen associations Why yes. or colorado hunters need to link their associations, their organizations, whether nonprofit profit or otherwise, need to link up with these cattlemen associations because cattlemen associations are going to have detrimental impacts by these wolves and that is what's going to move the needle for you guys if that is still a viable option. So anyway, man, we can we've been going for an hour and a half. I apologize for (laughs) for making you sit so
1: long. (laughs) <laughs> Not a problem. I, I enjoy. It. I, I i yeah, I enjoy the 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 dynamic of you know just being engaged in conversation because you know, I, I try to wake up every morning with the outlook of, you know everybody I encounter today is going has the opportunity or potential to teach me something new. and so, I uh my my wife sometimes rolls her eyes at me. She's like, "Have you never met a stranger? Do we always have to talk and stop and talk to everyone you meet?" It's like, oh, yeah, the they same might way, teach man. you something new, but uh, but no, you're right. Yeah, the the Wyoming to get to be able to get the wolves delisted, the the wool growers association and the stock growers association, they were the big driving force behind that. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, with them, and um, yeah, that's that's the hell of it too. Hunters were not really that organized sure we've got the rocky mountain elk foundation or the mule deer foundation or you know whatever these little organizations but they don't unite enough together to be a big giant voice you know yeah if if they did what what a voice we would have right exactly if we, if we were all if you look at license hunting license sales numbers in in these western states i know wyoming you know, uh, Montana, Utah, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, all of our Western states, you look at license sales numbers and we are a force to be reckoned with. If we could just simply get over ourselves yep. and come together and say, no, enough is enough. I'm tired of this. You're, you're done. Um, but we just, and, and I get it. Everybody's busy, right? You know, we've got kids and, in. I, we homeschool our kids as well, but they're still in sports. Um, man, I'm and glad to hear have, that, man. More people need yeah, to be homeschooling. It, it, I agree. Um, you know, yeah. and, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we kind of had our hands forced on that, but, but, you know, eventually it comes down to butts and seats, equal money. And guess what? If, uh, if you start running short of money, maybe they'll start paying attention. Yeah. But, yeah, um, no. There's you know.
0: there's truth to that. There's truth to that for sure and now, right. Fons, you make some great points, man. Uh did, did I cut you off? I feel like you were trying to finish that thought there.
1: Well, you know, I uh uh no, not really. I I guess one other thing real quick, um that you know, I think with this Colorado deal is it's going to be it's going to force the hand of federal land management agencies to um, you know not be able to do anything about it, and and they're going to run rampant, and yeah, you know,
2: good point.
1: And, and these you know some of these large elk, you know, there's a elk herd in northwestern Colorado that I think is probably the largest herd in the United States, and it spills into Wyoming, you know, and so we're going to see these magnificent things eventually go away, like we saw with the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. But one thing that I that makes sense to me and it's it's not a very it's not very popular opinion or um a mindset but i i think that if federal lands were managed in the states and and please don't misunderstand me i i've heard you in another conversation i'm not i'm not advocating for lands public lands to be sold to the highest bidder but i'm thinking i i think if they were managed At by the states and even more in every county level by an elected official. If you had an elected officer that his or her job title and description and the deputies that worked for them or whatever their their job titles were, they were in control of managing the public lands within the boundaries of their county. So that way there was someone to be held accountable. And it doesn't matter if it's if it's for mining, forestry, um, you know, access for uh, recreation, or all of these things, you know, grazing, all of these things, if 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 they were, if it was better able to be um, a some sense of accountability for those public lands, I think that we would see them those resources be better managed. You know, some in in the West, we're seeing a, a huge decline. In the numbers of mule deer, and I don't know that you can necessarily put your finger on one cause of that, but all of these contributing factors, one of those being uh, a loss of habitat. Well, if we did some deforestation or thinning of forests, and you know, and we know what that does economically. You up there in the Panhandle of Idaho, that's that's some big old growth. Um, fir trees that are highly sought after Mm -hmm. and what does that do for those small towns you've got your sawmills and your and your sawyers and your trucking companies that those that's what fuels those small economies i don't i'm not saying going in and clear cut everything but let's do some thinning that it's going to improve the habitat for wildlife and and agriculture and it's also going to improve uh you know the local economy because it's going to create jobs Um, what about if, if, you know, you're out recreating with your family and you're planning this trip and you're going to go up this trail, but now the trail's locked. Well, who do you go and, and redress your grievances with? No one. You go to the local BLM or forest service office and they'll say, oh, that's not my department or, or, or that person isn't in today. What do you do? Well, if you've got an elected official that's in the, in the County seat at the courthouse, you can go stand on their desk and raise hell, right? And and if you don't like what they're doing, you fire them next time. Yeah. But I think with the, with the growth of these federal bureaucracies, so talking again about my my boss Max, when he started managing this ranch in uh, in the early seventies, um, they they do have some uh, Forest Service land that they graze on. It's part of the Thunder Basin Thunder Basin National Grassland. And the office that manages that is down in Douglas, Wyoming. He said when he started working with them, there was one employee in that office, a a district ranger that handled the grazing allotments, the forestry, all of that stuff. One man. He said now there are over 80 employees in that office.
0: Why? Oh, yeah as the Forest Service it's acquired more land? No, it's, it's overbloated. and and I don't right. know what the answer to that is, Fonzie. I don't, I don't know. I mean, the the whole discussion of of um, you know having some kind of state management over federal lands and and swapping <laughs> who's managing what that's a whole other podcast episode. And oh oh yeah, and I, and honestly, I'm leery of of like the the dynamics and complications of of that kind of change to the whole management system makes me feel like somebody's going to fuck us over. And that's why I'm Uh, always super leery about having that. But uh,
1: there is serious, there's serious potential for that. And, and that's, and you know, you, you would want a lot of people at the table sharing ideas, you know, people that are thinkers and problem solvers coming up with ideas and solutions because you know you don't want to lose that you want yeah. it to be there i want it to you do i want it to be there for my kids and my and my kids kids because i remember my fond memories from my childhood being out recreating on those public lands and and i don't want that to go away i want other people to be able to go and create those memories like i did too but i i think the road that we're on or the the management plan that we have at hand is not the best that that we could have available to us. But yeah, no, it's yeah. it's a very complex issue and it's very probably complex. three, three podcasts oh, the discussion. Oh, easy,
0: easy but, three podcasts. Yeah. Easy three podcasts. And and uh no that and, and maybe we should do that. Maybe we should plan on that down the road, man. I mean I'm I'm totally yeah. up for that. Um hey the one thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap this up I'm I'm on your Instagram you bet. You've got uh, like your second post in, there's this guy, I don't know if that's you or not. um, There's this guy with an antelope prong, or, you know, pronghorn. What do you call him? Do you call him pronghorn or antelope? I call him antelope. I've always called him antelope, but people give me shit when I call him antelope. Uh, Because I, and I know, I know the reality is they're pronghorn. Okay. Anyway. The, but the, the, somebody's, is that you in the orange hat, uh, standing behind, or sitting behind that prong the antelope? Uh, God, that's a super good buck. Let's see. Digging uh, through all possibly. the icons, Let me look here. Digging through all the archives here are a few hunting pictures from over the years. I'm fortunate enough to live enough in, in Wyoming where I have the opportunity to hunt a diversity of animals on both public and private land. Uh, so I'm I'm assuming that's you or, or wait.
1: Yep, yep. West that is East. me. That's that's uh, that's okay. an antelope that I killed um, in 2015 or 2016 down in the Red Desert. I was lucky enough to draw an area 61 antelope license and killed that buck down there. Yep.
0: I'm curious about the suppressor on that rifle. That that's that that's... one. That's
1: my old, trusty, old, reliable 243. Is it really? That's... that's
0: a 243
1: yeah it's oh,
0: sweet uh,
1: it's, man it, it's far it's far from stock but it's it's got yeah, quite yeah. a bit of modifications aftermarket barrel and stuff but yeah it uh that suppressor that's probably is that my lane or my thunder beast
0: i have um, no idea man i i'm also i think looking, that's my
1: lane silencer
0: i'm also looking at that first picture you have there's a lot of pictures you have that have suppressors um
1: yeah i i've been lucky enough to hunt with those the last i think since 2016 15 or 16, I've been hunting with suppressors.
0: Okay. So, uh, we might have to do another podcast about suppressors, man, because I just got linked up with silencer central. Um, Uh, they're, they're going to be, um, a new sponsor on the show. I think starting quarter two of this year, I'm pretty excited because I had the CEO on, uh, yes, that was a good episode. Did you like that one with, uh, Uh, I I call him Mr. Maddox because he's so (laughs) well-spoken and right. and I really enjoyed having him on because I didn't know uh, certain things about suppressors. I've never used one. I uh, just didn't 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 have a lot of familiarity with them. And I'm pretty excited about this uh, this connection, this you know partnership with these guys because they they make them like right next door to where you live. Um, yes. And it, it's a it's a really good system. And what I'm really excited about is I want to put them on my daughter's uh, rifles because they uh, you know you, you can always they don't necessarily silence the rifle. Right. But they disorient the sound and
1: right. Yes. The the muzzle report is, is very similar to that of like a, a bolt action or semi-automatic, you know, 22 rimfire uh, long rifle. And
0: they reduce the recoil. And so I'm, I'm my, my daughter. So dude, my wife is only four foot 11, you know? And, And so my daughters are not like, big body. I'm a big dude. My, my girls are not like that. They're, they're teeny. And so even the 6.5 Creedmoor I got from my youngest, my 12 year old, you know, she, it takes a hit. Uh, when, when she right. fires that thing, you can, I, I posted a video, like it really rocks her world. And so I want to, I want to do everything I can between reducing the grain in the bullet itself to adding the suppressor. I'm going to put one of these silencer central, uh, suppressors on there and, Anyway, I just, I just, as we were wrapping up this conversation, I noticed all the suppressors you have on there, and so it got me thinking about that. So I might have to pick your brain on that in the future.
1: Absolutely, yes. They're, uh, I think they're a, a great uh, tool to add add to the arsenal for, you know, for so many reasons. But yes, yeah. I highly recommend
0: them. All right, guys. Well, before before I have Phronsie or Phonsie, I keep wanting to call you Phronsie, man. It's Fonzie. That's fine. I've been called lots of stuff. Uh, <laughs> you probably be called worse, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but not by me, buddy. I uh, I yeah, have a lot of respect. It. I lo- I love to have you on the show here. So, before I have Thank Fonzie tell pleasure. us uh, tell us where we can all find him. I want to let you guys know that um, I, you guys have heard me talking about the Eastman's Tag Hub and the Eastman's Mule Deer Course. Uh, for the last several months, I am proud to announce we got a promo code for them, finally that gets you ten percent off if you want to take the mule deer course or if you want to be um, have access to the tag hub, uh, which is a really cool system to find you, you you know dial in what tags you want for the right budget and the right points and all that kind of stuff just to help you do all the research because it's been done for you. Uh, jump on and get uh, signed up for the Eastman's Tag Hub and use promo code Huntsman. And that's all lowercase for ten percent off, and I'll throw that in the show notes. So, uh, that said, Fonzie, where can people find you, man?
1: Uh, I, I uh, usual places: Instagram, Facebook, um, just Fonzie Haskell. Nothing, no fancy, frilly stuff. Um, is there is where I'm at? Usual, and,
0: is there a website you want me to promote in the put in the show notes there, so people could find like your outfitting service?
1: yes uh so the outfitting business is four horse outfitters we also have uh facebook and instagram pages for those and, and post uh, quite a bit of content as far as like uh, animals and successful clients and then our website is for uh the word for f-o-u-r for horse outfitter.com
0: so no s in the outfitters no okay Sweet. I'll put guys. I'll put all that in the show notes. I've got his uh, Instagram pulled up right here. It is at Fonzie Haskell, which um, eh, the last name H A S K E L L for yes. your, uh, you know, uh, dialing pleasure or whatever you're you're gonna you know type in there. Uh, Fonzie, this has been really fun, man. Actually, I really enjoyed this. I want to come down and hunt with you, I man. Too. Let's, let's do, I, I wonder if there's a way we could hook up a turkey hunt to, I, cause it, not for me, I, I just want to bring my daughters down, but you and I can hang out and, uh, you can, you can put them in front of turkeys cause you're probably a lot better at it than I am anyway.
1: Well, I know where to find them. I'm not that good at calling them. I'm, I'm pretty good at calling coyotes and elk, but not so much, uh, at turkeys. They're just, they're okay. not too wild here.
0: Okay, so here's what we'll do. You locate the turkeys, I'll call them in, the girls will shoot them, and you and I will have a uh, nice time around the fire that night. There you go. Sound like a
1: plan? That sounds like a plan. <laughs> I like that.
0: All right, buddy. Again, thank you for coming on the show. Stick on the line for just a minute uh, after we stop recording. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciated it. Um, it was a really you, fun, My insightful converse- conversation.
1: I thought so. Yes, thank you.